Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers University, Newark. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Gregory Pardlow is the winner of the 215 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. The judges says his latest book called Digest was filled with clear voice poems that bring readers the news from the 21st century. We're rich with thought, ideas, and histories that were both public and private. Pardlow's poems have been published in the American Poetry Review, the Boston Review, The Nation, and in the Norton Anthology of Contemporary African American Poetry. He's also a teaching fellow at undergraduate writing at Columbia University. His poetry chronicles the lives of working people, and he draws from personal experience, like the 10 years he spent working in a jazz club with his grandfather, his time in the Marine Reserve, and watching his father lose his job during the 1981 air controller strike. But let's start with the Pulitzer Prize, that magic moment. The information that I got was actually a text from a former student who had this information rolling through her um, her news feed on her computer at work. Former student from where? From Callaloo. So I, I, teach, uh, I teach a number of workshops, and uh, Callaloo is a literary journal. And it, um, it's founded in 1976 uh, by Charles Rao. It is pretty unquestionably the most important African-American journal of both literature, art, and, and culture and scholarship. Um, she was excited. She was very excited. Yeah. Uh, and obviously more excited than I was. I was just struck dumb and, and confused by the whole situation because, you know, so I get this text from a student saying, congratulations on your Pulitzer. Pulitzer. I, I actually <laughs> pronounced the thing wrong. On your Pulitzer. Um, and I, I was just certain she had, it, she had it wrong. She had made some kind of mistake. But then a short while after, I got another uh, – I got a, a, one of those little Facebook balloons that pop up on the, the screen and uh, I got an email and, and things just started rolling in and I knew something was going on. I, I still wasn't convinced that it was uh, something as major as a Pulitzer Prize but something was happening. I was uh, um, optimistic and, and continue to be optimistic about the book because there was some early praise for it and, and support. Uh, that, well, one of which was the NAACP Prize, um, Image Award, rather. It was nominated for that. Uh, it was nominated for a Hurston Wright uh, Legacy Award. And so there was some critical attention uh, coming to the book. So you were hopeful, but... I was hopeful, but never as hopeful as <laughs> anticipating or even dreaming, imagining something as, as large as a, as a Pulitzer Prize. It just didn't cross my... Yeah. Very few people are, um, understand what, what getting a Pulitzer Prize is like. It's changed your life, didn't it, a little bit? The well, responsibility so, of having a prize like that? Yes, and I'm, I'm still negotiating what that means. So on the, on the one hand, I'm, um, I'm obviously very honored and, and, um, and moved by the recognition and the as my wife reminds me, the validation that that you know all these years of of kind of uh, sitting at my kitchen table late hours of the of the night scribbling away uh, were 
we're worth something. There is a, a, a sense of obligation to to acknowledge what this prize can mean to people who, like me, at thirteen or fourteen years old, may be thinking, you know, well, something like that—a a Pulitzer Prize in, in in any literary category or, or any kind of large, you know, national prize like that—is um, not something that w- can come on the radar. And so, my obligation—I feel not, I feel responsible to those uh, young writers to suggest to them that these things are very possible. And they're calling you and asking you for advice. And they're, and they're, they're calling me. They're asking me for advice and they're, they're inviting me to their poetry readings. <laughs> churches. <laughs> and their churches and their community groups. And, um, you know, and of course, I, there's, this isn't enough time in the day to do all of that stuff. But I, I do my best to respond to everyone um, and it is, it's really moving. Uh, I've gotten several letters from uh, kids around the country who say, uh, you know, I, I came from a small town too and uh, I, I hope one day to, to be a writer or a poet. And uh, that just gives me chills. It, it's really rewarding. And the impact on your children, on your wife? My kids, um, I have two daughters, um, 10 and 7. My daughters knew, they, they had a sense that, you know, daddy's, career means sort of rearranging our lives around the the demands of daddy's work and sometimes there are prizes you know I, you know so i the, my first book totem uh won the american poetry review honickman first book prize uh was chosen by brenda hillman a great poet out on the west coast and so i'm no stranger and it's also a I feel like I'm tooting my horn here a little bit. But I think but, you have to toot your horn a little mm-hmm. bit, Gregory, because um, people want to make you someone who came out of nowhere, an overnight success. That's there he true. Is. That's true. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm, I talk about negotiating the role of the, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet, right? yeah, I put that in scare quotes. Um, and one of the things that I, I kind of um, – chafe against is the flattening of the narrative, right? So the story that comes out in the, in the papers, the, the story that comes out in, in you know, a lot of um, just uh, reports and even reviews has this kind of uh, dark horse, uh, romantic, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, kid from uh, out of nowhere, uh, um, underdog, I guess is the term I'm looking for. Uh, quality to it, when the truth is much more nuanced as it always is. Right? I, I have indeed <laughs> been slugging away at it for for quite a while. Um, yeah, so I so in negotiating, I understand that the the public wants a consumable story the public wants to hear something that is recognizable and that they can identify with and so reporters journalists have you know an obligation to their story right to their craft to put it in a way to, to uh, sort of package the story in a, in a way that's consumable it doesn't take a lot to hype a Pulitzer Prize winner yeah yeah um, but I think that what people want is something more than what they want from you. They they want well, of course. We're, there, there's the there's a number of elements. So one is race, which is I think a, a, the most obvious one. 
Um, so what does it mean for this African-American male to win a Pulitzer Prize? The second, um, the second in history, in fact, uh, uh, Yusuf Komanyaka was the first, I believe, in 96. I might be wrong on that, but it's somewhere in there. Um, yeah, so what does it mean for an African-American male to win a, a Pulitzer Prize? And, and I think there are in six of, In poetry, that is, specifically. And there are six of us, I believe, all together, um, African-Americans who've won the, the Pulitzer. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a very small club. A different kind of uh, direct reader. A, a, <laughs> right. Uh, and I, and I want to honor that, right? I, I do want to honor the, the sense that, um, you know, there's – there is that history to celebrate, uh, but there's also the uh, the issue of age. So I'm by no means am I, you know, youthful, but uh, I'm certainly on the on the youngest youngest side for uh, for winning a, a prize like this. 1968. 1968. Yeah. Let me tell everybody who this young man is. <laughs> You're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO 88.3 FM and WBGO.org. And you're listening to the voice and the poetry of Gregory Pardlow, who has won the 215 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, all contained in a volume called Digest. Something you ought to read. What are we going to do? What are you going to read? Well, I was thinking of reading one of the... Um, poems in a series. Uh, so there are two. Well, the the, po- the book is made up of a number of series, and there is one that uh, was chosen for the best American poetry, I believe, in two thousand ten. Um, or was this one? No, I'm sorry. Not <laughs> this was chosen for Plowshares. This was published in Plowshares by Terence Hayes. Um. Take a take a breath. Yeah, because I actually don't remember where this one was published. Uh, it was, but it was Terence Hayes who, who chose the the poem. Um, so this is in a series called the Canadus Improvisations, and the basis for this was I I don't know if I, we've mentioned I've been working on a PhD for a long time for about a little more than ten years now, off and on. Um, and in the my readings for the the PhD, I come across. You know, I have a hard time staying focused and <laughs> and and uh, sort of you know, zeroing in on on ideas. And so, as I'm studying and as I'm thinking about my work, things just flow in from all over the place. So I find myself doing a lot of unnecessary reading, uh, just chasing down curiosity. And in that process, I discover, you know, bits of text and, and sayings and quotations that I find really compelling. Whether I understand them or not, there's something about the language that's really uh, – um, that captures my imagination. And so I have this series of poems that are based on quotations from uh, physicists and, and philosophers. And uh, So this one is from St. Augustine. And the quotation is, the quote I've taken from him is, if no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks me, I do not know. Now, 
we might find something like this on a on a coffee mug. I mean, it has a, a kind of you know, um, quotidian uh, uh, um, wisdom to it. But the fact that it comes from St. Augustine just seemed really interesting to me. And so in this series, I've taken these quotes and I've in some cases misread them and read them into my contemporary moment, my, my social and cultural experience. So read them. OK. So St. Augustine. Prince calls it little because he imagines a woman's body, waist up, the rest corvette which is French for a sort of girly warship, a chimerical twist on the Freudian cockpit. Who wouldn't want a belly button for a windshield? All us baby ball turret gunners would submit to mother love as long as we were allowed the illusion that we commanded the vessel. This may be why we give them names like Bessie and Lila May, but our cars are more prosthesis than portmanteau. We say, horses, that muscle and gun, but idle next to one and hear its sputtering Promethean delirium like a hound's twitching dream of dogfights in biplanes that strafe the velvet sky with the leathery helmets of their little red barons. We would have swooped the oil fields where pilot lights burned like zippos at a rock concert to safeguard our memories of weekends, washing father's vet, fearing both its pliant fire and our need to ride in pursuit of some unconscious joy, certain only that we'd know it if it ever could be found. And so with this poem, I've read into it, as you'll notice, uh, the prince and um, uh, peanuts, Snoopy, um, and the father. And, of course, my, my own father. Your dad, who uh, seems dad. to be uh, all the way through the book. He features – yeah, he, he's, a, he's a haunting in the book. He doesn't feature prominently, but he's certainly a haunting He's there all the time, the as far as I can tell. I think so. I Won't think you're you right go. in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know which, uh, which direction, the, whether I'm pulling or, or, or he's pulling. Uh, but there's, there's definitely um, an attachment well, you talk about, and uh, I think there was a first-person piece in Penn where you mentioned the, the relationship between African-American fathers and their sons. And it seems that uh, some of that is uh, in that book. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and we talk about the flattening of narratives. And I, th- I think there's uh, the, the popular – in the popular mind, um, the African-American father is an, is an absent – and, and disinterested figure. Uh, I think those of us with, with sense understand that you know, the story is far more nuanced and, and in fact that's simply not true. Um, and so one of the things that, that I want to do is, is reclaim that story, reclaim the, 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 the figure – and I, I'm putting that in scare quotes as well – of the, the, the black father but not in a way that – Gives him a pass, not, not in a way that's, that kind of elevates him to, you know, just this, this contradictory um, uh, uh, status of, of um, you know, the myth of the Huxtable dad. Uh, so I, I wanted to beat up on him a little bit 
Maybe business. you were getting even for him for not being as, uh, oh, as supportive when you went to the Marines. Oh, you think yeah. that might well, be it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. you know, and that's and that is the the right of the son in America, I believe. You know, there's um, uh, the privilege of loving one's father enough to resent him for being human. I think is is something that um, we enjoy uniquely, and we should um, we shouldn't shy away from. I think it's a conversation that that should extend further. Yeah, I think it's a privilege. And you'll be writing about uh, your father's uh, difficulties when he was one of those people mm. who walked off the job back in 1981 as an air controller, and he knows you're doing that. What he does he think about that? Oh, he's thrilled. He's thrilled. My. <laughs> So, I don't know your father. <laughs> no, you don't know my father, but you will. <laughs> he's he's uh, he has he's quite a large. He's a charismatic figure. He's a he's a huge ego, um, and well, now and, he's really got an ego. And now he's, now son, he's really he's the father of a Pulitzer Prize winner. And this is the the fascinating thing, you know. Is um, um, I have a good friend. Uh, Nick Flynn, who wrote about his father uh, in uh, a memoir, um, and so we we kind of commiserate that it's funny how you know this you have this um, tense relationship to the to the father figure, and and even in the, the honesty of revealing this story, uh, he ends up taking it as this this you know this approbation, this this kind of you know celebration of of his of his character. Uh, okay. Okay, but it means, have it. it means a lot to him, and I I think it meant a lot to uh, a professor you had at uh, Rutgers University in Camden, did it not? Tell well, us about Lisa. Oh, she's a you know. So I read at Rutgers in Camden just recently, and jokingly in in passing, she said um, she was announced. Or, um, I'm sorry, she was um, Lisa Seidner. Yes, but the, <laughs> she was introducing me. So she was introducing me for my reading at um, at Rutgers and Camden, and she jokingly, in you know, talking about her introduction to me beforehand, said, "Oh yeah, I'm going to tell them how uh, you, everything you know. I, you know, I taught you everything that you know." And I, I thought, well, you know, it's really not that far off. I mean the. I walked into her undergraduate poetry workshop having read maybe two or three poems. How long ago was that? That was 1990. That was 1996. That was 1996. I uh, and I this is after I had dropped out of college twice previously. And so this was my third shot. At it. This could be a third and last one. Right? <laughs> Whoever thought someone would be a, a triple drop drop out and then wind up with an MFA from NYU, right? Yeah. Well, um, we can also look at it as um, I, I. So I often talk about my my history, my trajectory as a writer, as a series of permissions. Right. So when I first went to college, I I had this sense that you know I had to conform to some story of. Um, you know, a, a corporate job, uh, um, you know, whatever the standard kind of become a, become a lawyer. Well, this is what it turned into. Even so, I, I didn't know I didn't have a, an actual 
idea for it at first. A word now to remind everyone that this is Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest is a poet, a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, and his name is Gregory Pardlow. Starting learning uh, to get the rhythm of poetry was in a kind of jazz club, right, in southern New Jersey with your grandfather? Yeah. So this was a really formative period for me. Um, that was before Liza came Lisa, on the scene. Before, Lisa, before, before Lisa came on the scene. Exactly. Or, or before I came on her scene. Uh, I was um, – I wasn't reading poetry but I was writing what I thought was poetry and – the jazz guys coming in. Uh, jazz guys coming in, exactly. It was all just a, I was writing out of a stereotype in my head about this kind of you know beat poet, and I didn't even have the words to call it a beat poet at the time. Um, but I was doing something with language that was uh, imitative of the, the the kind of dedication and discipline that I watched these musicians give their own craft. Did you and play so, at all? Did you play an instrument at all? I grew up playing guitar. Um, yeah, but I didn't I didn't have the, the discipline to stick with that. Uh, and I think I was – for whatever reason, I could you know, self-analyze why the, the guitar didn't stick around. But uh, I still enjoy – 30 seconds to uh, – to, 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 <laughs> to make sense of why I didn't become a, a rock star. Um, well, I, I think intuitively I recognize that uh, – the kind of self-destruction <laughs> that would have entailed was was uh, was was very frightening to me. Yeah. Before I forget, I want to bring in right now. You won ten thousand dollars as a Pulitzer Prize winner. People would think you'd won a hundred and fifty, sort of like a Nobel Prize. But that's no. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, I felt sorry for you. Only yeah, ten exactly. grand. I, I appreciate your pity. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I this I won ten thousand dollars in. 2005 for uh, a tra- translating um, poems from a Danish poet from the National Endowment for the Arts. I got, got a $10,000 grant from them. And so, you know, holding these two, uh, these two experiences side by side, you would think, you know, there's, there's something terribly wrong here. Um, but the payoff isn't the, – the, the capital that comes with the, the Pulitzer is not – in the, the check itself. I wouldn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're – there's a whole – there's so many parts to you. There are a bunch of articles about what you do and and uh, why you do it. For example, I was struck by the fact that you believe you deliver news through your poems. Well, that was the judge's citation. Um, yeah, but they know but what they're I, reading. But they know what they they know what they're reading. Okay, yes, you're right. Come you're on, right. <laughs> let's not fool <laughs> around here. here. All right, we're talking. Um, I read it. I read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I do have a a teacherly approach to the to the poems. I think there's a teacherly bent to them. Um, so my presumption is one of the things that I teach in my poetry workshops is for the my students to have some concept of who they're writing to, who their audience is. Who's your audience, I often ask. Um, and we have absolute control over that construction, who we are imagining ourselves writing to. And so I, I often imagine that my reader is uh, someone who really wants to know 
uh, and, and who's very interested in, in conversations around um, literature and art and scholarship and creativity. Uh, and I think this is – the book becomes a, a forum where I can imagine these conversations taking place where uh, I've tried it before with you know friends and family and – and gotten kind of approving, uh, 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 if 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 not a little dismissive, uh, you know, uh, responses. Um, and one of the things I think I'm I'm also kind of imagining in my scholarship in the scholarly world, uh, academics are not often interested in the creative process. Taking a chance here, huh? Um, no, I, I'd okay. So if that's if that's provocative, I'll I'll own that. Um, and I think there's a an approach to the reading of literature that is um, that that academics have that poets and writers have differently, right? And so there's we 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 come to the work with a, a different set of interests. Now, of course, you know, any um, we're sensible people, I, I acknowledge there are plenty who blur that line and, and who can move in between the two. But I think um, more, t- more often than not, we go to any campus around the country, we're going to find you know the, the the scholars on one lunch table and the the poets on an entirely different lunch table, and the conversations are are not often being had across. That's too across bad. The room. It's it is it is too bad. What do we lose uh, by that? Well, uh, we the public. We lose a, a sense of the immediacy. I think you know. So um, poetry becomes this thing that is distant and calcified and. Um, and and there to to be analyzed, as opposed to something that is dynamic and to it is, and being something to be read into. So, what do I mean by that? Um, as a poet, I like to move into the poet's mind. If any, whatever I'm reading, I place myself in the poet's sort of position. And imagine what this person was thinking to move from one idea to the next idea, and I'm, I'm fascinated with the, that act of, of of creativity. And what's your news? So the 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 news is that we can uh, that reading is an act of empathy. That reading is not a, a distant sort of analytical process necessarily it can be certainly but that you know, it is most rich and rewarding when we identify with the 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 person we're, we're reading regardless of their background of course right so you want to reach everybody I want and and the way I want to reach everybody is not by being all things to all people but by suggesting a kind of approach to the text that um, that does not uh, reinforce categories. That does not reinforce qualities of difference, and um, and this is why you'll find this kind of kitchen sink <laughs> approach in a lot of my poems. 
You're an idealistic young man. I sure am. You know, and, and it, you may as well fess up to it right now, right? <laughs> Philosophy you know, and everything. Yeah, yeah. I just I can't grow out of it. You know, my my my, <laughs> my father warns me time and again, and just uh, yeah, the silly idealism of youth. I just I can't get rid of it. At 46 years. At 46 old, years old, old, no less. Yeah. <laughs> Gregory Bartlow, a Pulitzer Prize poet from Brooklyn, New York beat of our city awaits you. Good luck on nailing down the causes of the air controller strike, and I'll certainly buy that book. Thank you very much. Joanna Wolp is the senior producer of our program, and Doug Doyle is our news director, and Conrad Sanguinetti is our engineer. You can tune into any of our other 90 audio biographies with a subscription to iTunes. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.